Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before. We've got insight from some of the best in the business of reality television, documentary series competition shows, social experiments, true crime, and much more. From The Prophet to Botched to Love is Blind to Pool Kings. If it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television. I've done shows like Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Pros vs. Joes. Each week, I talk to the talented people who have made unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, game shows, you name it. Not just something that you watch or you consume, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. My guest is one of the most dominant producers in the business of unscripted television today. His company is actually celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. In 2019 alone, he executive produced such unscripted series as American Ninja Warrior for NBC, Hell's Kitchen for Fox, The Titan Games for NBC, Mental Samurai for Fox, Ellen's Home Design Challenge for HBO Max, Welcome to Plathville for TLC, American Ninja Warrior Jr. for Universal Kids, NFL's Pro Bowl Skills Challenge for ESPN, and Voices of Fire for Netflix, which will come out soon. Please welcome the chairman of A. Smith & Co., as well as the chairman of Tenopolis USA, Arthur Smith. Arthur, thanks for being here, man. My pleasure, Steve. It's a long intro. You guys do a lot of programming. How do you maintain such a diverse slate and get so much done? Well, right from the very beginning, um, it was always our policy to be as broad as possible. I, I'm a lover of all genres. My, my career goes back. I was a sports producer earlier on in my career. I was head of CBC Sports when I was quite young. I worked with Dick Clark. I worked at Universal, ran Fox Sportsnet for four years. And so my background has been all over the place. When I think back on my career, I, when I was in sports, I missed entertainment. When I was doing variety, I missed doing docs. And A. Smith & Co. was set up to do everything, just produce it at the highest quality possible. You know, you're a guy who came up as a producer, hands-on, in the field, and now you're a chairman. How do you maintain that balance of wanting to be a creative, but also now having to be a manager, a guy who runs companies? Well, production is still my love. I'm still on the set of Every Day of Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay because we started it together. I was on the set of Titan Games every day. And you just find a way because, you know, my love of, of production is so strong that you can't keep me out of the control room. But I like the strategic part of it all. And you just find a way to do it. I don't know if there's any system or anything else, but 
Listen, when the company first started, when A. Smith & Co. first started, I was the executive producer of everything that we did. And that was uh, quite limiting. So about three or four years into the company, I brought in Frank Sinton, who runs our factual division. He's also CEO of the company. You know, he allowed me at that time to grow even further. Now, since that time, we have a number of key executives who are part of the, the company. And, you know, I don't work on every show. I still work on some. I do work on every show, but are there <laughs> some that I still work on, every, uh, you know, day to day? All right, let's. We, we had to talk about Hell's Kitchen and Gordon Ramsay. Sure. To me personally, he is kind of the epitome of the great reality television talent. I mean, he does it all. For you, what makes Gordon so special as a talent? Well, it's so interesting, you know, to see what's happened with Gordon's career because I was there at the beginning. You know, in 2004, when no one in America knew who he was. At the time, Mike Durnell and I had done a couple of shows together, Paradise Hotel, The Swan, and uh, had some success with both of them. And uh, it was pretty early on when the company first started. And Mike said, I want you to look at a tape. It was a tape of a show called Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay in it. I didn't like the show. Um, it was the UK <laughs> show. I didn't like the show, but I loved Gordon and I loved the title. And I went to yeah. Mike and I said, I have an idea on how to do Hell's Kitchen for the US and Mike loved the idea. And I said, what's next? He said, oh, you have to make a deal with ITV. ITV has the rights. So got together with ITV, we formed this partnership. And then we, you know, we did the show and we knew we had something special, you know, with this restaurant, you know, this live restaurant service in the middle of the show. And Gordon was such a star. But at that time, it was kind of risky because there had never been a food show on network television that had succeeded. Right. It just wasn't, um, it just hadn't happened yet. And food sure. was, you know, if you think about it, food was in a different place in America at that time. So, you know, we made the show. We knew we had something. But even Fox wasn't sure. And the show sat on the shelf for like six months. Memorial Day 2005. They said, all right, let's see how it does. And right from the beginning, the show came out of the gate strong and, you know, won its time, time period handily and never lost a time period for the next four or five seasons. In fact, wow. in, in season three, the show was the number one rated show in America. Not the number one show on Monday, not the number one show in the Times, but the number one rated show in America. It rated higher at that time than America's Got Talent. But, you know, now it's funny because, you know, you put Gordon Ramsay in a show and you have a very good chance that it's going to work because he's so special. But at that time, think back to 2004, and nobody, like I said, nobody in America knew who he was, except if you were a foodie, because he was already an established Michelin star chef. And yes, he was famous in the UK and had it started doing television in the UK. But, you know, he's amazing. And he's, he's such a great person to work with. And, you know, he's a great producer. He's super intelligent. And I think if Gordon applied himself to anything, he would be a success. It's funny because when I think back to 2004, we shot a scene on Hollywood and Highland. We could never do that today. I mean, you know. <laughs> no. Uh, he would get mobbed. But in 2004, we shot on shot. And it was funny because someone from the UK had come up to him and didn't even know his name. They said, aren't you, aren't you a chef on TV? And, and um, you know, that was the only person who recognized him. A, a few years later, just to show you how it all changed, a few years later, we were shooting in Times Square. We were shooting like the finale. We were shooting a scene for Hell's Kitchen in Times Square. And it was like a mob scene. I mean, it was like a rock star <laughs> riot. You know, for us, it's our longest running show. We just uh, we just did uh, right. season 19 and 20. What do you think is the key to the staying power of Hell's Kitchen? Well, I, th I think that, you know, listen, you know, if I look back on the, on the first season of Hell's Kitchen, obviously we've evolved it, you know, we've made it fresh. 
through the years. Because I think, you know, anytime you have a long running franchise, you have to think of things that, you know, that keep it entertaining for viewers and that you offer something special with every year that you do. Sometimes it's in the casting. Sometimes it's in a format tweak. We're always coming up with new challenges. Yeah. We're always trying new different things. But at the same time, you don't want to change it too much because otherwise, you know, people will go, where's the show that I love? Right from the very beginning, because I was not a foodie and knowing that we were going to be on Fox as opposed to the Food Network and knowing that we had to attract a big, broad audience, the show was designed to attract a broad audience and not just foodies. Foodies will like the show. I mean, certainly there's, there's things to learn and tips along the way, but it's a drama. It's a drama that's set in the kitchen and it has the dinner services like the game. You know, I'm a sports guy. So the dinner services like the game. Yeah. What happens before dinner services is kind of the pregame. And then there's this crazy fallout that happens after the game when they, you know, when an elimination is and they go back to the dorm. And the other thing about the show, especially at that time, most reality shows were casting traditional reality contestants. And Steve, you know what that means. So it's, it's, oh, yes. it, and when we were, when we were making Hell's Kitchen, we weren't casting those people. We were casting people, chefs, cooks, line cooks who wanted to work with Gordon Ramsay. They were unfiltered. They were real and they weren't looking to, um, for an acting gig or a, a modeling gig or Correct. to make public yeah. appearances. Winning Hell's Kitchen is still a very authentic thing. It, it does yeah. launch your career. It does change your life. And the contestants learn a lot. And so I think the authenticity of it is meaningful because we know how important authenticity has become over the years. I think even though our show is an older show, it still has that authenticity. I'll transition into American Ninja Warrior, which is really authentic in terms of you're just putting great kind of really raw athletes on this course. And it's you know, kind of a crazy course and seeing if they can make it. Yeah. I grew up as a kid with my older brother watching the Japanese version, right. which was insane. Can you talk a little bit about the process of getting the Japanese version prior to then making the hit show that is American Ninja Warrior? Sure. A number of years ago, uh, <laughs> G- uh, a small network called G4, which no longer exists, was running the Japanese version, which was called Sasuke. And it was an obstacle course show. It had everyday people trying to conquer this obstacle course. And then, of course, they had Mount Midoriyama at the end, if you made it to the end, and you got a chance to yes. uh, to take on Mount Midoriyama. The gentleman who was running uh, G4 at the time was an old friend. His name was Neil Tiles. Neil Tiles was a colleague of mine at Fox Sports. I was head of programming and production, and he was head of marketing at the time. So we were friends. And Neil called me one day, and he said, I have this show. Uh, called Sasuke. It's this obstacle course show out of Japan. And it's one of the only things that's getting a rating on my network. And he goes, I want you to take a look at it and see what we could do. You know, I watched a Japanese version of the show. And the thing that got to me was who was running the course. Yeah, You know, the pl- it was the plumber. It was right. a-, a lawyer. It was everyday people. And to me, that's where the magic was. Coming from the world of sports, I've always been very careful that when and whenever you're bringing something, uh, any athletic competition to prime time, it has to have broad appeal. Because most sports, quite frankly, are niche. They're not. Outside of the National Football League, most sports are pretty niche. They get a small rating. They don't get big, broad audiences. And that's okay because they play on ESPN or Saturday or Sunday afternoon outside of the NFL. So when Neil approached me, I said, yeah, I think there's something there. And I think this is what we have to do. And 
started to talk to him about the obstacle course being a metaphor for life. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, the obstacle course becomes a metaphor for life. There's a reason why these people are running it. There's a reason why people are doing this. We have to tap into who they are, why they're doing it, and play that up. And I think that's where the magic is. And so coming from um, producing a, a few Olympic games, it's always interesting to me that people will watch bobsled luge every four years <laughs> and they'll watch you know, all these you know, fringe sports. But in the Olympic coverage, you have to tell great stories. And all of a sudden, yes. we, we, we care about this stuff. And so right. much in the same way that people care about the Olympics during the Olympics, we have to make people care about this obstacle course. We have to lean into this as heavy as possible. And it doesn't matter who wins. It matters how well they do. It's not people versus people. It's people versus the course. And I say people because it's, course, yeah. it's the only sporting event where men and women compete on the same athletic course. It's a competition. I told this to Neil. Neil said, great. And he goes, here's your budget. And I go, oh, okay. And I said, okay, I think the best way to maximize this budget is we shoot it all in one location. And we're going to shoot it on Venice Beach. And we're going to shoot it quickly. And that's what we did. And so the show went on G4 and did very well. You know, it became the highest rated show on G4. And we were doing it for two or two or three, two or three years on G4 exclusively. And then as, as luck would have it, Comcast had bought NBC. And Neil and I said, you know, I wonder if we can get the finale, just the finale of our show on NBC. Never, ever thinking that years later, we'd be doing 35 hours of primetime right. television on NBC. And we talked to the people at NBC. We talked to, you know, the bosses at Comcast or Neil's bosses at Comcast. And eventually they said, okay, here's your shot. And it happened to be, uh, it was a Monday night in August. And it happened to be on the same night that Hell's Kitchen was on Fox. So we had Hell's Kitchen on Fox, you know, our other show, at 8 to 10. And Ninja was on from 9 to 11. And Hell's Kitchen won um, the 8 o'clock time period and the 9 o'clock time period. Ninja came in second to Hell's Kitchen, but then Ninja won the 10 o'clock time period. And the show really took off. You know, we have crazy, a crazy following, you know, with 75,000 people trying out a year. We have people sleeping out weeks before because we allow a certain amount of walk-ons We've had to create this uh, wristband system, so there's so we keep so things don't get out of hand. You you show up, you get a wristband, and and then you know so then you can go back home and wait for your number your your name to be uh, called. No, it's been it's it's been such a great run, and I I take so much pleasure in that show. It's funny because G four was a guys network, and you know th- yeah. the one concern that people had was that this was going to be a guy show, a guy show on a guys network, and. I always thought of it as a family show. And in fact, you know, it's, it's really 50-50 between men and women. And of course, you know, we know young kids love it. And right. it's, uh, it's been such a great joy for us. Well, that was my next question was a lot of the big network shows. And you know, this. even Hell's Kitchen, it has that tension, you know, between mm-hmm. competitors. And Ninja doesn't necessarily have that. It is, you know, it's the competitor versus the course. And it has a feel-good element to it, which a lot of people relate to. Were you nervous about that going in that maybe the big network audience that's used to Amazing Race, they're used to Big Brother and Survivor, they may not respond to that? Or were you always like, you know what? I think people need this kind of feel good uh, show. Certainly I was nervous. Of course, you know, you have a show that's on G4 going to NBC (laughs) and I, you know, um, you know, it's two different worlds. And so we just leaned into the, to the stories of the people in a bigger way. And I think when people watch the show, every time someone's on the course, it's kind of a show within itself. 
that mm -hmm. you can tune into the show at any time. You know, you get the story of the person, you, you get vested, and then you watch the run. And I've, I've heard, you know, friends who have young kids where, you know, the show runs eight to 10 and, and, you know, they have to put their kids, they want to put their kids to bed. And, and the kids, kids always say, oh, can I just have another one? Can I just have another one? <laughs> and, you know, you're kind of satisfied if you at least see the package in the run. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy if people watch the whole show. Of course, we want people to watch the whole show. And there is an overall arc to the series and to every night. Right. But, but knowing that the focus is on how this person does against this course, considering what they've been through in their life, or the fact that they're running for somebody else, or whatever their story is. And not all the stories are serious. Some of them are just fun, but you, you, you do feel something. You do feel that connection to the, char to, that, to the character. And I love the fact, you know, that this is the only... Uh, athletic competition where the athletes root for each other. It is the only athletic competition, right. like I said before, where men and women compete, you know, on the same, um, in the same arena. And the other thing that it has going for it is you can never judge a book by its cover. You, you, when somebody steps up to the line and we have been surprised a number of times when someone doesn't look like much and then they have tremendous success on the course. Um, and now <laughs> because the show is mature you know, people just take it very seriously. They're building courses yeah. in their backyards. There's there's ninja gyms all over the country. Right. Uh, there's books done on, well, we, we there is an American Ninja Warrior book, but there's also other books and other training things um, that people have come up with so they are prepared. Um, now, we have made the course so much more difficult over the years because the ninjas right. are getting too good. They're getting too good. So we, we, we have to stay one step ahead of them because it still has to be the toughest obstacle course in the world. And, and that the other, thing, the other thing that's very unique to the show is that there's no winner. Very rarely right. is there a winner. Um, we did have someone win a million dollars last year. That was the, only the second time that someone's won a million dollars. We've only had three Americans in 11 seasons who've ever conquered Mount Midoriyama. Is that, like, how does that feel at the end of a season when you don't have someone reach you know, Mount Midoriyama, which is the common season, and still feel like, okay, this is a success. Well, during the course of the season, we have, you know, we have like, I don't know, about seven or 800 people get their shot on the course. And uh, I mean, there's right. so many heartwarming, wonderful stories that have come out of the show. Uh, you know, we had, we had an athlete um, who's, who had a young daughter um, who needed a kidney and um, he was running for his daughter. He had a t-shirt on that says, for the most part, my daughter needs a kidney. You know, we, we expected the guy to do okay. Well, mm -hmm. he did better than okay. He completed the course, but better yet, someone saw his message and um, there was a kidney donation made. Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, the next year, the donor, the daughter were on the sidelines and to watch him run again. It's a real joy for us. And it's for me, being a, a guy who started in sports, went to entertainment, back to sports, back to entertainment, you know, it's a great blend of both worlds. Gotta ask, have you ever tried the course yourself? I have tried obstacles, uh, but not, not, I've never done a full run. Okay. <laughs> How did you fare? Way, and by the way, that's the most difficult thing because it's, you know, one obstacle at a time is hard enough, but it's the combination yeah. that really makes it extra hard. I'm sure. I can't. How did I fare? I did. I'm. I'm alive. Yeah. I didn't hurt myself. I don't do it. By the way, I. I don't do it anymore. 
I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, yeah. I do want to hit on something you said a couple times about sports and then uh, entertainment sports and reality. Cause I, my background is local sports. So I started mm -hmm. out as a local sports reporter and mm -hmm. then transitioned when I moved to LA into producing. What, what do you feel like, um, is that relationship between storytelling as a sports producer or sports reporter, and then transitioning to being a producer in unscripted or in reality? For me, I, I love sports, uh, you know, played it as a kid and, uh, you know, anything, anything that I can do you know, athletically, I, as a kid, I, I would do. And, and uh, I, I love it. And I, and I loved watching sports on television. But my first love is, my first love is entertainment. It's not sports. Yeah. Many people are surprised when I, when I say that. But my first love is entertainment. And so when I was in sports, you know, I was always producing it for what, it, for what I think it is, which is, which is entertainment. So my style in terms of how I told my stories and whatever I did in, in, in the productions um, at CBC Sports and later at Fox Sports was always how do I reach a big, broad audience with whatever I'm doing? How do I make people care about um, <laughs> downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, table tennis? I mean, I have I pretty much had done a, um, every sport imaginable in my, in my, in my years in sports. Um, but the other thing about sports and, and reality television um, is – you know, there are things that happen in the, you have to capture the moment as it happens. And sports producers make great reality producers. A lot of people in our company whose background is sports. Lindsay Kugler, who you mentioned before, you know, yeah. worked, worked for me at Fox Sports and, and she was uh, an executive producer at, uh, of, of uh, Kitchen Nightmares. Uh, Kenny Rosen, who's one of the executive producers on Hell's Kitchen, also worked for me at Fox Sports. Anthony Storm, who's the American Ninja Warrior producer, executive producer, also worked for me at Fox Sports. Frank Sitton, who's the COO of our company, um, was a vice president of programming at, at, at Fox Sports. When I think of the best sports producers, they have a quality of capturing the moment and making the most of the story that unfolds. Obviously, those skills apply to reality television. What I love about the, the two are it's the action, it, like you said, in the moment of sports, like it's happening mm -hmm. right now. And I love shows that do that. Like, you know, you guys do Ninja Warrior and Titan Games. There's no repeats. There's no, there's no second takes. That's it. On on things like that. Exactly. And that's what I do love. And you when you're a sports producer or a sports reporter, you know how to handle those things. I think there are a lot of people who are trained in other types of um entertainment or reality that don't quite have that skill set to just adapt on the fly and understand how to tell a story with mm -hmm. that happening, you know, that quickly. No, you've got it right. You've um, got it right. I mean, the thing is, is that, um, you know, when I was at, when I was at Fox sports and, uh, one of the things that we used to do is we used to do seminars because we had all these regional sports networks and we used to have seminars for every sport that we did baseball, the NBA hockey, and we'd bring in producers from all over the country and we'd go through, you know, game coverage naturally. But then we would talk about all the other things that we could do to enhance the game, all the innovations that we could bring in, how you set up a story. And I always used to say, as producers, we make our money when the action stops because yeah. the coverage of the game, we should be able to do that right. And yes, we'll have you know special cameras and super slow-mo and all the other great tech, you know, technical innovations you know, we can bring to our coverage, but it's it's what we do with what happens and how do, how do we sell the storylines of what's going on? How do we keep up with it? How do we make people care about 
the players or 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 the or the storyline and when you and and then there's all the other parts the replays the the special features apply that logic to something like the Titan Games which we do with Dwayne Johnson is that we make our money when the challenges stop you know we know we're going to cover the challenges right hopefully they're going to be close because that's what we all dream of is close you know people want to see close finishes but um we should do a you know we have to lay the foundation for what they're about to watch and then when the after you know then after it happens then we've got to dig out the story yeah all right speaking of the titan games yep. season two is airing right now doing very well tell me a little bit about the difference between season two season one you made a few adjustments right mm-hmm. uh tell yep. me a little bit about season two for the second season we we thought of uh some tweaks to the format that would make the show more interesting, more compelling. Part of that was to be a Titan, you had to beat a Titan. And uh, so Dwayne handpicked six athletes, Olympic gold medalists, uh, NFL players, UFC champions. They reigned on Mount Olympus and you had to earn your right to go to Mount Olympus. And so you competed against another athlete. If you beat the other athlete, in a best of three competition, then you had the right to go to Mount you know, go to Mount Olympus and take on the celebrity Titan or the handpicked Titan right. that Dwayne had established. If you beat them, then you become the Titan. And the show was divided into three regions of the country where you have, um, you know, three brackets essentially: an east bracket, a central, and a west bracket. Once you've established all the Titans at the end of the season, they come back in the finale. And I think that that format change really helped the show. And um, yeah, of course, we added new challenges. We uh, we moved the show inside, uh, which was crazy because we had to find a soundstage um, that was big enough to house this uh, epic, epic series we did in Atlanta. That's insane. Yeah, it, it was crazy. Wow. It was 40,000 okay. 40, square feet, but uh, it fit somehow. It fit, <laughs> um, and uh, no, it's been exciting. Uh, but the listen, the same, you know, the one thing that Ninja and Titan Games do have in common besides being an athletic competition is our focus on the characters and the people. Tell me a little bit about working with Dwayne Johnson and why he's so passionate about Titan games. So much of his message, so much of what he puts out to his 185 million followers is about being the best that you can be. And, uh, and with all that he does on social media, he's continual and, and, and not just social media and his, his public appearances um, is, about being the hardest worker in the room, you know, his motto of blood, sweat, and respect. We thought that the Titan Games would appeal to him. We thought that this show that, you know, inspires everyday people to become superheroes in this athletic competition would be an interesting notion. As uh, as luck would have it, you know, Dwayne had been thinking the same thing and actually had been developing something with, with his production company, Seven Bucks, so when the two of us got together, it was it was great, and because we, it it really did speak to him. I think the secret of having your A list celebrity being into your show is to develop things that you think they would be passionate about. And it's interesting, yeah. you know, we've been very fortunate because there's Dwayne Johnson, obviously on the Titan Games, who I don't know. I mean, he is the perfect person for this show and the show is him. I mean, there's a lot of him in this show and he is very, very involved, but there's Dwayne Johnson. There's Gordon Ramsay, obviously in cooking, but there's also Ellen who we do a furniture design show with. And there's also Pharrell who we are, you know, it hasn't um, 
dropped yet on Netflix, but it is something right. um, that we just uh, we just shot, Voices of Fire, which is a, a gospel music show. Listen, these types of people, these A-listers, I should say, you know, have a lot of options of what they can do, obviously. And so I think that you're way ahead of it if you develop something with them that you know they're going to be passionate about. In terms of COVID-19, coronavirus, mm-hmm. we're all yep. dealing with this as production. Um, how is a Smith and Co handling the situation. Obviously we're all learning as we go about how to deal mm-hmm. with it. What are you guys doing from a production standpoint with your shows? The interesting thing about when when COVID hit was fortunately we had a lot of shows in post. Fortunately we we just finished the Titan Games at the end of February. Yeah. So we got right. that in. Interesting the Titan Games wasn't supposed to air um this summer. Um, it really was supposed to air later on in the year really? or even the beginning of next year. Um, and um, it got moved up because it was shot. And our other show, American Ninja Warrior, was one of the shows that got put on hold. We were actually just about to shoot American Ninja Warrior when uh. when L.A. got locked down. So we, we were fortunate that we had a number of shows in post-productions, Titan Games, Voices of Fire, Doc Series, Unsung, another another Netflix series that hasn't been announced. Uh, announced. Um and Hell's Kitchen had already been been uh, been posted. So a, no, a number of shows, and there's a couple that I haven't mentioned, were already in post. So naturally, we had to come up come up with a way to edit. And like others, you know, we developed the remote you know the remote sure. editing systems, which was you know hard at the beginning. You know, the first week was oh my god, how are we doing this? And then all of a sudden, we got into the pattern, and uh, the shows are getting done on time. Titan Games is you know, was the biggest challenge because we were turning a show, the show around basically on a weekly basis, really, because it was a much faster turnaround than we anticipated, but we made it. There were a number of shows that were put on hold, like American Ninja Warrior, uh, like Mental Samurai, which got picked up for a second season, our TLC series, Welcome to Plathville, and a few others. And so what we've done is try to maintain all the all the development that we had done for a second season or a third season or a fourth season, depending on what the show is, for those shows. And right now, we are starting to get back into production on a number okay. of them. Um, so, and it's challenging. You know, one of the things yeah. that, that we realized very early on is I think the onus is on the producers, the production companies, to come up with ways to work around the issues. Um, and there are ways. And we are learning. Sure. And it is happening. Yeah. So American Ninja Warrior is happening. It's shooting this week. So we found, a, we found a way to do it. And it's safe. And we're being very careful. And there's a lot of testing. And when I, It's funny. Yeah. When I used to talk about testing on American Ninja Warrior, it meant testing obstacles. Now testing means yeah. a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, and our TLC series is being shot. And Mental Samurai is, is going to be shot later this year. And um, our Ellen Design Challenge show is going to be shot later this year. So it's happening. We're all learning and we're all learning from each other. And the one thing I will tell you is that it's nice to see our community, our nonfiction community come together and really help each other and say, what are you doing? And I've had a lot of conversations right. and shared what we've learned with others and, and, and they have done as well. I'll tell you what though, we're being very careful in our development on what we, what we're developing now, sure. because, you know, we don't know how long this is going to go on. So um, we're, we're a company that produces a lot of big, splashy, yeah. global yeah, exactly. shows. So, you know, we're being very careful, but we've always had, 
you know, it's, it's, it goes back to what we said at the beginning. The company has always been this broad-based company that works in multiple genres, and that has served us well over 20 years because there are fads even in our unscripted business, and uh, it's always good to have a broad slate of programming so you get through whatever challenging times are ahead. And we've been very fortunate. You know, for 20 years, it's, it's, it's been an unbelievable ride. Uh, feels like five um, I can't believe it. I can't, I can't believe it. Cause we're one of the older, older companies in the business. Yeah. And, yeah. um, it's funny when I left Fox sports in 2000, reality television barely existed. I just knew that, you know, after all those years of fo- working at Fox and Dick Clark and CBC and universal that I love production so much that. I knew that the next step for me was to set up a production company. And everything that I learned at all the other places that I worked uh, was kind of uh, an education for me on how to set up a production company. I usually end the show with talking about some shows to watch. You mentioned that you have a show for Netflix with Pharrell. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, uh, can you talk a little bit about that show and when it uh, when it's going to be coming up on Netflix? Oh, my God. It's such an inspiring show. Um Pharrell and his uncle, who is a bishop in a church, wanted to create this choir, this gospel choir. And um, the process in, 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 in how they build the choir, um, the stories that we tell, the music is phenomenal. It's a show that I think is coming out at the right time. It's a very emotional music experience. That's all I, that's all I can say because... Um, the headline, you know, they're building the greatest choir, but it's, but it's, it's not a real, it's not a reality show in, in the old school reality definition. Um, it's more of a, you know, we're more documenting the process, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful show. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for giving me some time. I know you're a busy man. Um, and, uh, there's a lot going on in the world, so I appreciate you giving me some time. My pleasure. Now, for everybody listening, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question if you have one so I can answer it on the show. Email your questions to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the audio connection. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.